Man, it is good to see you guys this morning. I mean, man, this service has already been so touching to me personally. Thank you guys, really. And having the kids a part of our service is such a joy, truthfully, you know, just seeing their little faces, even if my daughter didn't move at all, you know, it was just it was great. I loved it. Um, I do hope that you will join us next week for our brunch that will immediately follow the service. That'll be a great time just to grow a community together and that you'll join us for Christmas Eve here in this room. Um, guys, we are celebrating just something that is really hard to get our minds around. I mean, it's just the most intense, um, beyond reason and logic miracle that we come into a room like this every December and we remember and celebrate. And we can kind of minimize it, we get too familiar with it, but it is just jaw-dropping that our God, the God who existed before time and anything, the God who created all of this, is giving you the breath in your lungs. Our God has entered into history that the author has written himself as a character in the story to visit us and to save us. It's, just, it's a completely remarkable story. And I think as we come into this season, it's a good thing, right? But we often think Christmas is about family. It's about friends. It's about incredible food. It's about gift giving or vacations or whatever, nostalgia, but we often can forget, or at least we assume it, that Christmas is about salvation. Christmas is about salvation. Uh, to put it even more frankly, Christmas is about problems. But Christmas is also about solutions. And for you and I, in order to experience the joy that the Alexanders just shared about, in order to experience that kind of joy at Christmas, you have to know what your true problem is. You have to know what you're being saved from. Uh, I've recommended it to quite a few different people, but there's a really wonderful little Advent book um, by Christopher Ashe. It's called Repeat the Sounding Joy. And it's uh, an Advent series through Luke 1 and 2. It's not too late to pick it up and, and to go through it yourself even. But in that book, he writes this. He says, to feel the true light of Christmas, we need first to grasp the true problem. That's what we're talking about because Christmas is about salvation. It's about things were a certain way, now things are a different way, right? There's a before and an after sort of thing that we're celebrating here on a morning like this. And we all love before and afters, don't we? You guys love before and after photos at least, right? I mean, people were like obsessed with these things. I mean, Discovery Plus runs on before and after stuff, or HGTV runs on this kind of thing, right? You see a, a house in disarray, and then you watch the entire episode, but all you're waiting for is the end when they give you the big reveal, and they keep panning back and forth between, this is what this room used to look like, this is what it looks like now, and it's an amazing transformation, right? There was issues with the house, and those issues have been solved. Right? Nobody would watch it if you were to watch something like that, and they showed you this house in disarray, and then they said at the very end, they just go, here, we put this new couch in there. Right? You would go, well, this isn't really scratch the itch right? from what I was hoping for. It's, it does, it's not really fixing the main issue. You know, or, or social media, right? We love before and after things. Like, uh, we love the before where people are, are saying, man, I need to get healthy. I need to get in shape. And then you see the afters, Right? But could you imagine if I did a before of how I look today, right? And then a year later, I posted an after and I just changed my outfit. That's all I did. 
it would not scratch the itch, would it? Right? Because in order to have a good before and after, there's a real problem that exists, and it has to be addressed. If that issue is not addressed, you don't have the solution. You don't have the salvation that you're looking for. Do you guys know what your true problem is in life? Do you really know what your true problem is? Not at just an intellectual level, but at a, at a real belief experiential level. Like you're here this morning and you feel like you're waiting out a really long dark night and you're just wanting the light to dawn on you, to, to bring about the salvation you're looking for. Well, that's exactly what we have in our text this morning. We have the birth of John the Baptist and we have his father sing a song of blessing to God. And what you'll see is just these two clear movements. We have a story, and this story leads you to hang on this question, who will this child be? And then Zechariah sings and blesses God, and he says, this child will be. And in it, we find the hope of our salvation, where joy will actually come from. So as we walk through these two sections, I, I want to ask you two different questions that if you consider them, if you really think about them, I think it'll get your finger to the bottom root. You'll be able to point to the true problem that you have or maybe the misguided assessment that you've made before you walked in here this morning. So the first question is this, what do you wonder at? What do you wonder at? Look with me in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. It says this, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. If you can think back two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Luke chapter one, and we saw Zechariah is a priest. He's married to a woman named Elizabeth. She's barren. They're very old in age. They are unable to have kids. The hopes of having a child is long forgotten. And God appeared to Zechariah while he's serving in the temple right outside the Holy of Holies, offering up this prayer of incense to God. It's like the priest's Super Bowl, right? It's like something you, not every priest even gets to do. And so this is like the greatest day of his life. And a, Gabriel the angel appears to him and says, behold, you will have a son. Elizabeth will conceive and you will bear a son and call his name John. And we know that Zechariah did not believe. He doubted. Why? Because the angel says, you will not be able to speak until these things have come to pass. So it's been nine months, and we learn here that that has actually been true because Zachariah still cannot speak, and we actually learn here that he's deaf as well. He cannot hear, and we know this because these people, when they want to talk to him, have to make signs to him, that they're trying to communicate with him. So what has happened to Zachariah is now he has had nine months to consider this to consider what God has said to him, to see if he can come into alignment with what God is going to do in this world. If you notice in verse 57 and 58, there's a party taking place here. Neighbors and family are gathered together for the birth of this child, okay? This is quite the party. This has been pretty common in those days. Nowadays, 
I don't think you want neighbors at the birth of your child, maybe even not even family, right? I mean, who wants that, okay? But here, this was quite the spectacle and quite the scene. This is what they would do, and this is really a big deal. I mean, everyone knew about this. Think about it. Elizabeth is an old woman. She's about to give birth, okay? Um, don't doubt yourself. If this was culturally acceptable, you would have been there too, right? I mean, seriously, like, think about this. If you're like in a Lamaze class or something, and there's a an old lady in the corner preparing to give birth, you'd be, your interest would be piqued, right? You're like, what is going on? This is not normal, right? I mean, you would want to check out what's happening. You're like, what's possible in the world? And so we have this now, this, this very matter-of-fact statement, the child is born. A miracle happens. Elizabeth gives birth to a son. Verse 58 says, God showed her mercy, and everyone rejoices. They're all excited, I mean, this would have been one of those things that's like at the end of the news segment, you know, like the, if you ever watch the news anymore, there's like 25 minutes of horrible things, and then the last, they're like, and one final story tonight, right? And they give you this like good news story, right? This would have been like an older lady gives birth to a child. Isn't this amazing, right? And we're like, okay, the life world isn't that bad, right? And so this is how the news works, and this is exactly where this would have fit, right? So now comes the time for the naming, Right? And this is where the tension or the conflict in the story arises. Right? There's, if someone tells you a story and there's no tension and no conflict, it's going to be a boring story. Right? There's, it doesn't make for a good one. Okay? And so here, this is our tension. This is the conflict, right? which, is, which is interesting um, because Zechariah, again, he can't, sp- excuse me, he can't speak. And in a patriarchal society, he would have been the one with the authority to name the child. And for us, I think as modern readers, we look at this and we're like, how is this a conflict? This doesn't translate. I mean, who cares, right, about the naming of a kid? I mean, we name our kids whatever we think sounds good. I mean, that's why um, baby names are often even like Instagram filters or something like that. You know, it's just like, that sounds nice. And we name our kids after things like that. So what is the point of this tension? Well, in that day and age, if you've been waiting, especially for this long to have a child, and it's a boy, then it would have been named Zechariah Jr. Right? You want to pass along that heritage. What a blessing from God. And so he can't speak. And what does Elizabeth say? She goes, no, his name is John. His name is John. And they're confused. They think this is not how the world works, right? They, they basically do to her, sadly, what my kids do to me, right? They go, Dad, can I have this? And I say, not now. And they go, okay, I'm going to go ask Mom, right? They go, what's his name? His name's John. And they go, okay, let's go figure out from the dad, right, what this name should be, okay? What will he say? Undoubtedly, he's had time to think about it. What is he going to do? This is this tension. Will Zechariah submit to what God is doing in the world, right? And so what does he do? He gets a tablet, It was a a piece of wood with wax on it. You know, it was the iPad before the iPad. And he gets the board out, and what does he write? Not he shall be called John, but his name is John. That's significant. John means God is gracious. What is Zechariah saying? I'm not the one who's even going to name him. He already has a name. God gave it to him. His name is is John. God is gracious. See, Zechariah has come to a place of trust and belief in that moment that God was on the move, that his word was and would be true, 
that anything would be possible for God. But then notice this progression. That's the climax of the story because everything after that changes. You can't go back anymore. Things are different now. Look in verse 63. They all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke. What did he say? Who does he talk to? Does he look at Elizabeth and go, babe, I love you, you know? Does he look at his kid and go, look, he's so cute. No, he blesses God. His first words are to bless God. And fear came on all the neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. He speaks He can speak after nine months. He says his name is John. Immediately, the text says, he can speak. So what happens? They fear, okay? They gossip. And the gossip keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. And not just some weird form of gossip, right? Or sinful gossip. This is the kind of gossip that causes people, it says, to lay up in their hearts, wondering what God is doing in this world. It literally means to put on top, right? They're laying it up in their hearts. They're putting it in the place of primary importance. They're thinking about this. This is what they're meditating on. This is what they're consuming and brooding over. They're laying it up in their hearts and minds. They're on the edge of their seats, wondering what God is doing in this world. That they're meditating on the gracious actions of God. They're essentially going, what is he doing? What kind of world are we living in? What's God going to do through this child? Zechariah and everyone here, is, he's coming into alignment with who this child is going to be. He doubted, now he's all in. He didn't trust God and what he was doing. He had boundaries on God, and God had busted through those boundaries, and now everybody in this region is going, what's happening? What's happening? I want to ask you this morning a similar question, and that is, what do you lay up in your heart? What do you wonder at in your life? I mean, isn't Christmas a season of wonder? I mean, that's that's kind of how it's framed out, sometimes for untruthful reasons, but there are truthful reasons why it's a season of wonder, that we remember that God has come into this world, that He's visited us, and now we even... We must think, like, what kind of world am I living in? I mean, what what is going to become of this place? What do you lay up in your hearts? What do you wonder at? What do you meditate on? My little girl, she's five, and she sure seems to rule the world, okay? She at least rules our house. And I'm terrified of her, if I'm being really honest. So, um, I mean, it's, she's got a good life. All right, she's got a really good life. Um, she, she sleeps in. I have to wake her up for school every day. You know, getting her dressed, I've given up. I'm just like, what do you want to wear? Who cares, right? It's just what you do it. You know, if it's a bowl of cereal, it's got to be the perfect color, you know, and if it's not, I, 
I should better just hand wash it. I'm going to lose, you know. And so you want that spoon? I'll hand wash it for you. You know, it's just like this all day long. And so she's got a good life. She has lots of fun. And and we could talk about things like, man, Christmas is coming. What do you want for Christmas? We're going to visit our family in Oregon later this month. We're going to go to Oregon. That'll be great, you know. Or um, you want to go to Universal Studios? You know, like she's got a good life. And so there's these moments that come, though, where she says, can I have this? And I say, no, we're not going to have that. And that's it, right? I mean, forever now, for the rest of the day, that's what we're focused on, right? You know, and then so I have to sit down, I have to remind her like, hey, look at this and look at this and think about this and look what this, you got a great life, you know? But we're just gonna brood over this thing right here, you know? I could say this because um, she's not an anomaly, right? She's probably learned it from me, if I'm being honest with you. I, I'm, I'm no different than she is. Maybe I'm more sophisticated at it, at best. I could be pretty sophisticated in my pouting, right? How about you? Right, when you go through your life, do you lay up in your heart, do you wonder at, do you meditate on what God hasn't done versus what God has done? Do you just fixate on the thing that's not there? Do you wonder at that? Or do you meditate with a hopeful expectation on the gracious actions of God? See, Christmas is exactly the right time to let your mind wonder at what is God doing in this world? What is he doing? I love the old uh, carol. It's an old folk carol written in the early 1900s, I think, as the story goes, by a young, really poor girl in the Appalachian Mountains. Appalachian Mountains. It's a song called, I Wonder As I Wander. And she sang this out in the streets one day, and some guy kept paying her to sing it so that he could write down the lyrics, and he re-recorded it. And now it's attributed to him. But there's, many, there's a few verses, but the first verse, I'll just give you the first verse. She sings, a little poor girl in the Great Depression, she sings, I wonder... As I wander out under the sky, how Jesus the Savior did come for to die for poor, ordinary people like you and like I. I wonder as I wander. We are wandering through this world, and I wonder what you're wondering. I wonder what you're wondering at. I really do. Do you wonder at how God has been gracious to you, how he will be gracious to you? Do you wonder at how he's going to be gracious to Redlands? Do you wonder at how God is going to be gracious to the ends of the earth? What do you wonder at? I propose to you that leads you to your second question. And that is this, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Whatever you're waiting for, you see as your solution in this life. This is where this becomes a musical again. Because look at verse 67 and following, what does it say? Zechariah, filled with the Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This may very well be what he opens his mouth with and says right in verse 64. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets, holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is where we get the question, the answer to that question, what will this child be in verse 66? You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Here in this song, this poem, you have two chunks, verses 68 through 75, we see what God is going to do, but it's written as if God has already done it. It's very similar to what Mary did last week, if you were here. But then in verses 76 through 79, we see who God is going to do this work through. It's through their special child. But if you even look closer, there's more and more parallels throughout this poetry. There's this has done, will be parable, uh, parallel. Um, Josh Harder in our, our sermon group this week pointed this out. And it was a very good observation. But if you look, look at these parallels, you have these bookends, right? Verse 68, God has visited us. Verse 78, the sunrise shall visit us. Move in. You have another bookend. Verse 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us. Verse 77, what's this son going to do? Give knowledge of salvation. Go down to verse 70. Just keep going. He spoke by the mouths of the holy prophets. Then you have verse 76. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This lands you into the middle of seeing how God is going to visit us to do what? To save us. Because why? He said he would do it, and God keeps his word. Why is he going to do this? That we. Right? Verse 71, that we should be saved. Why should we be saved? Verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. These people have been sitting in the darkness and the light is dawning. And what does that light look like? God himself is coming. He's visiting them. He's going to visit them. He's coming over to their house. Guys, this is so unique. I don't want you to miss it. Because this world, and literally anybody in our world, and in the media or wherever, any religious figure, any other belief system, they're going to tell you over and over and over again that we're all generally good people and we just got to become a little bit better people. And if we go this way up this mountain and this way up this mountain, we'll all get to the top and it doesn't matter because that's where God is. We just find our own way. As long as you're not doing a bunch of bad stuff to other people in your mind, then everything's going to be okay. But that's not even the message or story of Christianity. This is saying that the God on top of the mountain has come down and he has visited us. Why? Because you couldn't make it up. No one could. 
See, God hasn't merely visited us, though. He didn't just show up and go, hey, I'm here, let's hang out. That's not what God did. No, what does it say? He has visited us and redeemed his people. This is redemption at a great cost to the person. That's what that means. He didn't just visit you and say that he loves you. He's demonstrated that he loves you through redeeming you by dying in the process. It's like if you were at your house today and there was a candle lit and you took a piece of paper and you put it too close to the flame and it started a fire, right? And someone panicked and called the fire department and you blew it out and they all showed up and they're like, hey, we're here. If the fire department visited your house today and you're like, oh no, there was a little problem, but I fixed it. Thanks for coming. Thank you. We love first responders. Here's some cookies, right? If that, that's a certain kind of visit, right? You're like, my problem's not that big of a deal, Okay, But if you have a big problem, right? Let's just say you had a big problem, a fire in your house and the fire department comes and someone runs in there and saves your life, but they die in the process. It's a great cost to them. That's a different kind of visit, isn't it? This visiting, this light dawning, it's not the you had a problem, but hey, thanks for coming over, I fixed it. This is a, I can't fix this problem, and God's like, I know I'm coming. I'm showing up. Why is he doing this? Well, he's going to save you, and the symbol here is this horn of salvation. It's a symbol of strength. It's saying you have a strong Savior that's coming. Why is he going to do this? Because he made a covenant. He made an oath, verse 73. God has remembered that covenant. This word remember is really important because it's not saying that God forgot He's like, oh, you know what? I forgot. I said I was going to do that. I should probably get around to that. That's not what it's saying. When it says in the Bible, God remembered, it means that he's now acting on something that he said he was going to do. That's what it means when he remembers it. He's now acting on it. God has said he would do this. Why is he going to do it? Well, it's to save us from our enemies. What are you going to be saved for? Well, now we're back to the middle, right, of our bookends. What are you being saved for? that you might serve him all your days. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, it's doing what is right in his eyes. It's living a life that's set apart, that's holy, that's different from everybody else in this world. It's us being an alternative community in this world where people look at our lives together and they say, those people are, are not like this world. And they, they look a lot like the character of God in the Bible. This is what this means, that that God's people display holiness that shows we belong to God, that that we live righteously, that shows that we are humbly and joyfully submitting our lives to another king. And we do this not just for a Sunday, not one day a week, we do it all our days. Guys, do you see this? God hasn't come to save you and then just say, you're good now, go do what you want. He saved you from something to something. He saved you from something and to something. And if you know at what cost that came by, you would gladly do it. So I think some of us probably hear that and we go, that doesn't sound like what I'm looking for, right? I just want this problem fixed. I don't want my life to be having to serve God forever. I always think though of this story. The story goes that Abraham Lincoln, he went out to a slave auction one day and he was abhorred by what he saw. 
And there was a young slave girl being bid on, and he was so bothered. He said, I want to do something about this. So he bid and bid and bid and bid, and he, he, he won her. And he goes to the auctioneer, and he pays for her. And then he walks over to this slave girl, and he says, all right, you're free. And she goes, what do you mean I'm free? And he goes, I mean you're free, right? And she goes, what is that supposed to mean? And he just keeps, you know, it means you're free. She's like, well, you mean I can go wherever I want to go? And he goes, yeah. And she goes, well, I think I'll go with you, right? I have no idea if that story is true. I kind of doubt it, but it doesn't matter. I think it's getting to the heart of the gospel. Not that Jesus saves you, so you can just, what do you want to do? Whatever you want. It's not what it is. But the heart of the gospel is that, that when you know that Jesus has redeemed you at great cost, if that's what his visitation took, you will say, I want to go with you all my days. Guys, do you know that you need to be saved? What do you think that you need to be saved from? I propose you'll know the answer to that question if you can look at just what you're waiting for. What are you waiting for? What are you hoping will arrive? I mean, you might be waiting right now for I don't even know what, and it's a real problem. I'm not minimizing your real problem. But you think, man, if this thing just arrives in my life, everything will be better. Everything will be different. But will that really solve it? Will that be the end? Or will the spiral continue? I propose to you that we all have these personal grids in our thinking that really mirror the storyline of the Bible, right? You have this grid that we work with that the Bible tells us about, that God created this world, that there's been a fall, there's been a sin that's entered into the world and now everybody sins, right? This world is broken, that there is a redemption that has come through Jesus when he has visited us, and that there will be a consummation, there will be a new heaven, a new earth, there will be a marriage is what it's equated to, and we will be with God forever and all we will know is light. No more darkness. Right, these are our personal grids. Do we have this grid on the screen? Can we put it on the screen? I propose to you that even no matter where you are, this is a grid by which you think through your life. All of you are doing this all the time. And everybody in the world is doing this. We all think in terms of creation, Right? You, you think in the sense of like, I have an identity. This is a sense of who I'm designed to be. Like, this is who I'm designed to be. And the world is telling you that you can create your own design right now. That they're saying that you just be whoever you want to be, right? Just what do you feel like being? You can be that, right? And so you're longing for this sense of identity. You, you have it. You walk around with it. But then fall, which in the story of the world, the, the, the problem is sin, but you look at every situation in your life and you go, this is my problem. This is the thing that is preventing me from being who I'm meant to be, right? But then you, you look for some redemption somewhere, right? You, you think this is my solution. If I had this, everything would be better. Everything would be different. And then you have this consummation, this hope in your heart, which is you thinking, this is my definition of better. So no matter what it is, in the smallest of problems to the biggest of problems, you, I, everybody in this world, we walk around with this sense, this is who I'm meant to be. This is the thing standing in my way. If this thing would just come, 
everything would be better. You're waiting for something. You're waiting for salvation. You're waiting for redemption. You might not think out loud in these categories, but you're making statements like, I'll be happy if this. I'll be fulfilled if this. I will be accepted if this. You have a perception of your life. You're like, I gotta get this, th- this thing. So what do you perceive then as your main problem? What's your problem? Whatever that is, you will be waiting for a solution to that problem. And depending on your problem, you're going to think various things about that. I mean, to put it in just the most practical terms, you can do this in this sense where you can go, I am meant to be a happy and healthy person. My problem is that I'm not eating right and I'm not exercising. So my solution is if I eat right and exercise, then I will be a happy person, right? My identity is I wanna be a happy and healthy person. My problem is um, I feel kind of lonely. So my solution is having more friends or having a different community. If I have that, then everything will be better. And I'm not minimizing these problems. These are real felt problems. You have these problems. I know, I have these problems. But let's just say I got happy and healthy. That's not fixing it. Why? Because there's a lot of happy and healthy people walking around this world that are deeply still unhappy if they're being honest with you. Right? We go down the line, we proclaim and hear proclaim to us, you need to be saved, but saved from what? What do you think you need to be saved from? Well, this poem answers that. Zechariah prophesies, he says, God is coming to save us from what? Our enemies. That's great, what's your enemy? Well, if you're Jewish and you're Zechariah, maybe you're thinking Egypt, they enslaved us. Maybe you're thinking Babylon or Persia or Greece or currently Rome. But do you need to be saved from Rome? You like Rome, right? I mean, I I watch Downton Abbey all the time. I see those Viking River cruises and I'm like, I'd love to go to Italy, you know? Italy's not my enemy. That's a vacation, right? So you go, oh, this doesn't even apply to me. Well, no, Zechariah doesn't even say that's their problem. No, can you just interpret enemy however you want it? Can you just go, oh, this is, this, this is talking about Betty, right? Or this is talking about Patricia or Gerald or Tony from high school, right? They're my enemy. Is that who God's gonna save you from? No, these are not the enemies that God has in mind because what does it say that we should be saved from our enemies, verse 71, But look at the knowledge of salvation that's coming in verse 77 through this man to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What's your big enemy? It's your sin, isn't it? This is why John is the forerunner. He's the Elijah figure who Elijah shows up in the Old Testament and all of God's people are just whoring after other gods these idolatrous lives, and he says, repent, turn back to God. He's the true God, over and over again. This is what Elijah's gonna do. Come back to him. Repent from your sin. He has come to redeem you, to shine light in your darkness that you're trying to hold on to and hide from. He's gonna dawn upon your life and bring about a redemption that's gonna come at great cost to his own life. Repent from that sin. That's what he's gonna die for. This is what he's doing. Jesus says that sin is like a Pharaoh. He says whoever sins is a slave to sin. 
And he goes, I've come to set you free from that. Why? So that you could serve him all your days. So you would see that and go, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. You guys, Christmas is announcing to you, it's recalling to your mind that you need to be saved. That's what we're remembering. That I need to be saved. And I could do nothing to do that. I was sitting in the darkest of places, just hoping for a light to come. And it's come. I'll never forget my dad told me a story when he was in his early 20s, this was before my life, um, that he went backpacking with a friend in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. It's in Montana, it's majestic, there should be an image for you. But, but he went camping with a friend backpacking and they had a campsite and his friend was supposedly a more experienced backpacker and his friend said, hey, today we're just gonna go up on this little hike, see the top, we'll be back before dinner time." My dad said, okay, they brought nothing with them except a little bit of water. By the time they almost get to the top, they realize this is a longer hike than we thought. So they get to the very top just in time to see the sunset. And they get up there with nothing and they realize we are sleeping up here tonight. Completely exposed, no sleeping bag, no nothing, just the darkness of night. He said to me something like, you know, it was probably the longest night of my life, right? I think initially he fell asleep, but he woke up at one point to an animal chewing on his shoe, right? Couldn't see what was there, so he just shook his foot and made some noise, and it kind of scampered away, not knowing would this thing come back and take my life. I don't know what's up there, that kind of thing. My dad is sitting up there in the longest and darkest of nights, just laying there, laying there, hoping, waiting, longing for the sunrise. He has a problem, He is waiting for the solution, and the solution is that dawning of light. I cannot even fathom the relief that he felt when the sun finally broke, when the darkness scattered, and he could finally make his way back down to camp, right? He had a real problem, and the light was his real solution. And maybe that's not you. Maybe you're a better backpacker than than he is, you know, or his friend, but maybe you're feeling weary this morning, right? You're going through a really dark night. You've got problems. And you're waiting. This is saying that a light has dawned in the face of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God has come to fix your truest, deepest problem. Do you see that as your real problem? If you do, then Christmas is for you. Christmas is wonderful news. But if you're like, I don't have that big of problems, then Christmas will be about whatever else you want it to be, but it won't save your life and it won't change your life, will it? Guys, as you wander in this world, what do you wonder at? Do you wonder at how the King of Kings came and hung on a cross? That the light of the world has come and when he died, it says darkness fell over the whole land at noon. Not because it was rainy like this today, but because the light of the world had died at great cost to set you free. Do you see your need for him? Christmas is about problems, but better yet, it's about solutions because it's about salvation. 
in the face of Jesus. Let's pray. God, this morning we come to you and we want to just give a moment of pause, Lord, to think about our lives. Holy Spirit, would you uh, reveal to us, if you haven't been already, just what it is that we're waiting for, that we think is really going to be the solution in our life. Help us just to gravitate towards your gospel, to see, Lord God, how you have met us at the cross and in the empty tomb in the face of Jesus to defeat our real problem. Help us to rejoice in that, to get our joy from you in that. And today, Lord, I pray for any of those who really are going through real serious stuff, real darkness. God, that you would remind them that you are with them in the darkness, that you have not left them, that you are gonna bring them to a day when all they will know is light. God, would you remind them of that this morning? We pray. Increase our joy as we meditate on you, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would wonder at you, God, and all that you are. You are so good. You are beyond our our boundaries and our boxes and uh, help us just to wonder at you right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.